Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 17. In the last two episodes, I've worked my way through the Copper, then Bronze Ages, also covering the metal casting process. All of this because Moses, in Deuteronomy 8, told the Israelites that Canaan was a land rich with iron and copper, and indicated that his speeches to the Israelites likely occurred in the transition between the Bronze and Iron Ages, which of course leaves me with the history of the Iron Age to cover. And with that, let's get started. The first stages of the Iron Age didn't come about because the people recognized iron was a better material than bronze. In fact, the evidence is that they still thought bronze was better, owing to its higher hardness and lower melting point. So, it's easier to make, and more durable. Two qualities that make it hard to beat. What brought iron to the forefront was something else, at least according to some. And this was a disruption in the tin supply chain, an event that's been dubbed the Bronze Age Collapse. This collapse involved a dark age, meaning little to no recorded history. In the Middle East, Anatolia, the Aegean, North Africa, the Caucasus, the Balkans, and the Eastern Mediterranean from the Late Bronze Age to the Early Iron Age. Historians think the event was violent, sudden, and culturally disruptive. The palace-based economies of the Aegean region in Anatolia that typified the Late Bronze Age disintegrated, transforming into the small, isolated village and city cultures of the Greek Dark Ages. The half-century between about 1200 and 1150 BC saw the cultural collapse of the Miocene kingdoms, the Kassites in Babylonia, the Hittites in Anatolia and the Levant, along with the New Kingdom of Egypt. It was also when the Ugaritic and the Amorite city-states fell. And, most important to this podcast, it's when the Israelites crossed the Jordan into Canaan. All of this interrupted well-established trade routes, and overall, the education of the peoples inhabiting these areas decreased, which is likely what led to a reduction in the recording of history. I'll do a deeper dive into this event in the near future, but I need to get back to iron. Between 1200 and 1100 BC, populations in these regions were on the move, and not just the Israelites, but all throughout the land surrounding the Mediterranean. This is also about the time the people who were usually known as the Sea Peoples showed up in the region, and this caused a reduction in the available tin. Remember that bronze is an alloy of copper and tin, with the typical ratio for the period being about 90% copper to 10% tin, give or take. But without the tin, there is no bronze, just much less useful copper. In the preceding Bronze Age, bronze smith got really skilled at smelting metal, and likely had already figured out that with additional heat, about 1000 degrees Fahrenheit, just over 500 Celsius, more heat, the smelting of iron ore was possible, but not needed since the qualities of the finished product, what we today call wrought iron, wasn't nearly as good as that of bronze. It wasn't as hard and tended to be more brittle. 
likely more of a curiosity than usable material, until the tin problem. To be clear, tin was still available, but with the limited supply, its cost increased, setting the table for iron, smelted from the more available iron ore, to become more widely used. And then something happened that tends to occur in these situations. As iron became more accepted, and smiths forged it more frequently, they got better at it, while also making incremental improvements in both the process and finished product. Improvements that lowered the cost further, while increasing the useful qualities such as making it harder and less brittle. Overall, Iron Age technology is represented by the production of tools and weaponry by ferrous metallurgy, aka ironworking. More specifically, that involving carbon steel. More on that in a minute. Like the preceding stone, copper, and bronze ages, there is no definite date when the Iron Age began. Instead, it was more like a slow creep, and archaeologists tend to agree that it begins in a particular region when iron tools and weapons are finally considered better than their bronze counterparts. This is typically indicated when these weapons and tools outnumber the bronze versions in use. Backing up a bit, well before the true beginning of the Iron Age, iron was being used, though it was more of a novelty. The Egyptian pharaoh commonly known as King Tut, who died in 1327 BC, was found entombed with an iron dagger, bracelet, and headrest. But that's not the earliest known find of iron. That distinction belongs to nine small beads dated to about 3200 BC, also found in Egypt. And the beads and Tuck's dagger have something in common. They both have been identified as being sourced from meteorites. Meteoric iron is usually an iron-nickel alloy, and was used by various ancient peoples thousands of years before the Iron Age. Such iron, being in its native metallic state, required no smelting of ores. Obviously, you can't change society to the point that a material leads to an age bearing the same name by making tools and weapons from fallen space rocks. You're going to need a more plentiful material. So, in the case of King Tut, Despite his iron weapon and jewelry, he still lived and died well entrenched in the Bronze Age. But it's worth a minute on iron sourced from meteorites. In that period, iron was extracted from iron-nickel alloys, which make up about 6% of all meteorites that survived the fall to Earth. And we know the iron that comes from meteors due to their unique crystalline features. This is only possible because the crystalline structure survives the relatively cool metalworking techniques of that time period. In addition to Tut stuff, there is a meteoric iron bead from the 5th millennium BC found in Iran, along with spear tips and ornaments from ancient Egypt and Sumer dating to around 4000 BC. Overall though, meteoric iron is very rare, and the metal was likely very expensive, perhaps even more expensive than gold. The early Hittites are known to have bartered iron, both meteoric and smelted, for silver, at a rate of 40 times the iron's weight. The other party to that barter transaction was usually the old Assyrian Empire, 
in the latter part of the second millennium BC, about when the Israelites were arriving back in the area. Meteoric iron was also fashioned into tools in the Arctic. About the year 1000, when the Thule people of Greenland began making harpoons, knives, and other edged tools from pieces of the Cape York meteorite, a meteor that broke into at least eight large pieces totaling over 58 tons, no telling how many smaller fragments there were. In the Greenland case, typically pea-sized bits of metal were called hammered into disc and fitted into a bronze handle. These artifacts were also used as trade goods with other Arctic peoples, but they didn't stop there. Tools made from the Cape York meteorite have been found in archaeological sites more than 1,000 miles, 1,600 kilometers away. And keep in mind, Greenland is an island, testament to the existing trade routes of that era. From a different meteor, a woodworking adze dating to about 1000 AD was uncovered in Sweden, jumping out of the rabbit hole and back to iron and the age named after it. Back in the beginning stages of the Iron Age, or at least with the beginning stages of the knowledge of how to refine the ore and then work with the material, the skill spread throughout the Mediterranean region quickly. And the reason for this is the same reason it did in the preceding Bronze Age, trade routes. Traders didn't just move products between places, but also knowledge. Not to forget, and as seen in Egyptian hieroglyphs, various steles, and even the ancient texts of the Old Testament, writing had developed. And with this, knowledge was easier to move between places, even in a dark age. Iron smelting is believed to have developed in the Middle East and spread from there to South Asia, then to Central Asia, Eastern and Central Europe, and finally to Northern Europe, not arriving there until about 500 BC. And while that may seem like a long time, Beginning about 1200 BC and arriving in Northern Europe 700 years later, this was still far quicker than the prior ages arrived in the same regions. One of the more interesting debates about the Iron Age isn't when it began, but when it ended. Most side with the convention that the Iron Age ended with the beginning of the historiographical record, essentially the formal recording of history. And just like everything else, this began in different regions at different times. In the Middle East, this generally aligns with the establishment of the Achaemenid Empire, which was around 550 BC. And while this is a bit arbitrary, it's chosen because of the historical record recorded by Herodotus. It wouldn't arrive in Central and Western Europe until over 500 years later, and around the turn of BC to AD when the Romans began conquering that region. At least for most of Europe, some consider that the Iron Age ended in Scandinavia as late as 800 AD, with the beginning of what's known as the Viking Age. To put that in perspective, the end of the Iron Age took over 1300 years to make it from the Middle East to Scandinavia, and it made it there some 1200 years ago. So, we today are closer at least chronologically closer to the end of the Iron Age in far north Europe than they were to when it ended in the Middle East. To me at least, that makes us seem a little less significant. All of this holds true in the Middle East and Western Europe. 
In Asia, at least in China, they began to keep reliable historic records before they tamed iron. So, if the Iron Age is defined as ending when history was reliably recorded, then it never really arrived in China. Of course, they did figure out how to use iron, just like everyone else, but had figured out history earlier. For this reason, mostly, you'll rarely see the Iron Age referenced in China. Sub-Saharan Africa is a related conundrum, albeit different, where their use of iron did not demonstrate a mastery of the material, and the recording of history lacked as well. As if that wasn't confusing enough, there was no real Bronze Age there either, likely due to the lack of reliable sources of copper and tin. Obviously, there's a both Middle Eastern and European influence into dividing the history of man into these distinctions. Not good, not bad, just different. Of course, the region that's relevant to this podcast is the Middle East and Northeast Africa. In this region, the Iron Age is usually divided into two separate periods, uniquely named Iron I and Iron II. Iron I ran from about 1200 BC to 1000 BC, so from about when the Israelites showed up in Canaan, through the period of the Judges, and into the Kingdom of Israel, all during the first part of the age. Of course, and just like the Bronze Age, the defining characteristic of the Iron Age was the mass production of tools and weapons made from steel. Which of course means a need to address the difference between iron and steel in the smelting process. Iron is commonly found in the Earth's crust as an ore, usually iron oxide, such as magnetite or hematite. The iron in this ore is extracted by removing the oxygen through its combination with another element, carbon. So, in the process, the oxygen in iron oxide is combined with carbon to form carbon dioxide, leaving more pure iron behind. At first, small amounts of solid iron oxide were melted together by heating the ore in a charcoal fire and then welding the clumps to each other with a hammer. The hammering would force the impurities out. As the blacksmiths got better, they learned to regulate the carbon content by manipulating the iron in a fire and alternatively hammering it. And they had an advantage over their predecessors. Unlike the carbon and tin used to make bronze, liquid or solid iron dissolves carbon quite readily. While it's in its ore state, and as it's being heated, the oxidation rate of iron increases rapidly at temperatures above about 1500 Fahrenheit 800 Celsius, and that's why such a high level of heat is required. But even with this, the smelting only produces what is known as pig iron, or the more ambiguous crude iron, and it still has too much carbon to be regarded as steel. This excess carbon other impurities were removed in subsequent steps. As for those smelters, and, as I've mentioned in the previous couple of episodes, the smelting of iron required much higher temperatures than that of the copper and tin needed for bronze. Those materials can be melted in the same kilns used to fire pottery. For iron, new heating methods were required. But it wasn't just heat that was needed. The technology required to remove the impurities from the ore also needed to be developed. 
The first evidence of this occurring was found in Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, and dates to between 2200 and 2000 BC, so just before Abraham lived. These are little more than small iron fragments found in soil layers. It's believed the fragments were from iron tools. Later, larger pieces, dating to around 1800 BC, and in the same region, are believed to be iron pieces used for unknown purposes by the elites in that society. Still, these are of such small quantity that no real conclusions can be drawn, except that ironworking at that place and time was rather limited and had no real impact on society, likely more of a curiosity. Despite this, the use of iron continued to grow, as by about 1400 BC, even more artifacts have been uncovered, as seen in the archaeological digs of the Hittite Empire, which existed between about 1600 and 1200 BC. Though there has been more uncovered, it's still believed that these artifacts were limited to use by the elites of that society. The overall trend of the time was that iron was smelted more and more, but it was nowhere close to displacing bronze. That would come with a disruption in the tin trade. Which gets us to about 1200 BC, and an acceleration in the smelting of the metal, and not just in the uncovering of artifacts in this small region. Instead, over the course of a couple hundred years, and likely spurred by the need to replace bronze due to the tin shortage, the use of iron exploded all across the region. One of the more curious aspects of this was as iron was being turned into tools, such as plows and hammers, the existing bronze versions of these tools were being melted down and made into weapons and armor, and the production of iron took on a life of its own, better and better methods leading to better and cheaper tools, such as the way technological revolutions go. We've seen this in the past few decades with the miniaturization of computers and phones that can do more and more. Generational change in less than a generation's time. And in that world, as the bronze plows were being beaten into swords, iron was being made into even less expensive plows. Of course, the disruption to the tin trade wasn't permanent, but it caused permanent changes. Tin eventually became available again, but by that time, iron had displaced it. Why? It was cheaper, lighter, stronger. And that's a winning combination. When it was first smelted, at least in the period after the use of open fire pits, this process was usually done in what's known as a bloomery, or a crucible. A bloomery is nothing more than a pit or chimney, with heat-resistant walls made of earth, clay, or stone. Near the bottom of this, one or more pipes, at that time likely clay or bronze pipes, protruded through the side walls. These pipes allow air to enter the furnace, either by natural convection or forced with bellows, or in some cases, by the wind. An opening at the bottom of the bloomery was used to remove the bloom or the bloomery could have been tipped over and the bloom removed from the top. Over the years, the smiths developed a process that led to more efficient iron production than steel production. 
Their first step was to prepare charcoal and iron ore. They discovered how to make charcoal, and this was a surprising leap forward, though it likely occurred in the Copper Age. Charcoal is almost pure carbon, which has two benefits. First, it burns at a high temperature, hot enough for smelting whatever ore required the process. Of equal importance was that it provided carbon for the oxygen found in the oxide to bond to. Remember, iron ore is usually found as iron oxide, and adding heat and carbon transferred the oxygen from the ore to the carbon of the charcoal to form carbon dioxide, leaving more pure iron on the other side of the chemical equation. The next step was to break the ore into smaller, more manageable pieces. These would be added to the fire, and while heating, any moisture in the ore would be baked off. As it heated, larger impurities could be crushed or hammered out. In the beginning of the process, the bloomery is preheated by burning charcoal, and once hot, iron ore and the additional charcoal are tossed in, usually through the top. Inside the furnace, carbon monoxide from the incomplete combustion of the charcoal reduces the iron oxides in the ore to metallic iron. All of this is done without ever melting the ore. And because this can happen at a lower temperature than the melting point of iron, it was more within the reach of the ancient blacksmiths. But there was a downside to using charcoal, owing to it being mostly carbon. As the iron released its oxygen, it could absorb carbon from the charcoal, and too much carbon would yield iron that was difficult to impossible to forge. Essentially, the lower the carbon content of the iron, the better the end product. More on that in a minute. Over time, the smiths would learn to constantly monitor the temperature and ratio of the ore to charcoal to better the iron that would emerge from the bloomery. After the iron and charcoal were fully heated in the bloomery, the small particles of iron produced would fall to the bottom of the furnace, where they would combine with molten slag. This slag typically was a compound known as phyllite. This is a mixture of silicone, oxygen, and iron, along with other minor impurities from the ore. The mixed iron and slag would be allowed to cool somewhat to form a spongy mass referred to as the bloom, hence the name of the furnace, a bloomery. This bloom product is highly porous, and its open spaces are full of slag, which needed to be driven out of the iron. This is done by reheating the slag and then hammering it until the iron separates from the impurities. This process is known as working it, and yields wrought iron. And the word wrought itself gives some insight into how old this process is. While we use the term wrought iron, we never say something has been wrought, unless we're quoting the King James Version of Numbers 23, where it reads, What hath God wrought? Wrought is the archaic past participle version of the word work. Anyway, I digress. Sometimes, instead of wrought iron, it's called bar iron. The first of the bloomeries, at least those that its remnants have survived through the present day, date to about 930 BC and were uncovered at Tel Hama in what is today the country of Jordan. 
This location is on the far east side of the Jordan Valley, nearly equidistant between the Sea of Galilee and Dead Sea. And the date of 930 BC is significant. After the tribes entered the Promised Land around 1250 BC, the area would have been controlled by either the tribe of Gad or the eastern portion of the tribe of Manasseh. And just before 930, it would have been part of the kingdom of Israel ruled by King Rehoboam until 930, when the kingdom split. Though, at the time, the kingdoms of Ammon and that of Aram Damascus held territory in the same area. Who controlled these bloomeries at any specific time depends on which year you're looking into, as the boundaries between the territories moved quite frequently. So, this is where and when we think the first bloomeries were used. After the decrease in available tin, and the blacksmiths got better at forging iron, it wouldn't take long before they happened across the alloy we know as steel. This version of the metal tends to have a carbon content of around 1%, and when this is achieved, the metal produced becomes better than bronze. Cast iron, which was produced well before steel, is higher in carbon content, typically between about 2 and 4%. So obviously, the discovery of steel was a major finding in the Iron Age. And that provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue hammering my way through the Iron Age. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.